If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Breastfeeding may seem like an innate human experience that transcends history. But according to art and cultural historian Joanna Wolfeth, Experiences of feeding babies have always been embedded in social and cultural customs. Her new book, Milk, examines how attitudes to breastfeeding have changed over time. And I spoke to her to find out more about ancient baby bottles, the moral dangers of wet nursing, and why the Virgin Mary was sometimes depicted with a breast on her shoulder. Thank you so much for joining me, Joanna. It's great to speak to you today about your new book, which is Milk, An Intimate History of Breastfeeding. But tell us how you came to this. What drew you to research the history of breastfeeding? Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really when I had my own baby. I always knew that I personally wanted to breastfeed, but it was only after I had my baby and um, we went through quite a lot of difficulties with feeding. And I was surprised by just how much breastfeeding meant to me as well. But while I was going through all of these difficulties and all of this joy with breastfeeding, I just kept wondering, women have been doing this for forever. Why am I finding it so hard? Am I alone in finding it so hard? What, what did women do? before. 
And I think because breastfeeding is, it's what defines us as mammals. It's what, you know, in in many ways, biologically, we are designed to do. I think there's sometimes then a tendency to think that it is perhaps ahistorical, that it exists outside of the realms of being influenced by social and cultural history. And as a historian myself, as an art historian myself, that was also kind of the misconception I was probably laboring under because I'd never given it much thought. And so it was only when I started looking through the archives while breastfeeding, I started to understand how we have developed such complex social and cultural kind of customs around it. And of course, how we feed our babies is embedded in social history and cultural history. And I think that we do parents a disservice by presenting it as something completely ahistorical that sort of happens in a vacuum. And I think that's something that your book really illustrates, the fact that this is so embedded in in social history and cultural history. What you show in your book is how breastfeeding, it can illuminate some broader historical trends really, can't it? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, how we feed our babies, how we think about the breast and breast milk connects so much to how we think about womanhood, how we think about motherhood. So we we have this, certainly in the Western history, and that I primarily look at in the book, we can start thinking about the the idea of womanhood from classical antiquity, right? The idea that woman is closer to nature versus the kind of cultural intellect of the male, that they're somehow a slightly lower state, more animal, more unruly, more messy. Women's bodies are somehow kind of uncontrollable and, and, and all of that. And that's an idea that persists and, and, and carries on in various different ways. At the same time, though, we also see at that moment in history that breastfeeding is deeply embedded in mythology. It's part of the creation story with the the story of the the creation of the Milky Way coming from a goddess's milk, from Hera's milk. And it's also becomes associated with ideas of charity as well, with classical stories of, of the virtuous daughter feeding her father. So what we start to see is this really kind of confused and actually contradictory sense of of what breastfeeding is that then changes as ideas about female sexuality changes. So if we think about kind of sexuality and breastfeeding in Elizabethan England, for example, female sexual pleasure is quite important as a part of reproduction. That idea then goes away and changes. And so it's less about kind of the female pleasure that's biologically important it becomes more about a sort of a sentimental maternal idea of womanhood and of, of, of motherhood that was women take pleasure in breastfeeding because it's good and natural. And what can you tell us about medical understandings of breastfeeding over time and how they have played into these cultural ideas too? Well, I mean, obviously for much of history, there were really no other real viable alternatives to breast milk. There are times in history and in certain places and certain moments where we see really no cultures of breastfeeding, where infants are fed animal milk. But those tend to be very, very isolated, tend to be places that are very, very cold. So there would be less issues with animal milk spoiling and less issues around disease and and, and so forth. But of course, for much of history, there's been no real alternative to, to breast milk. What does change though is our actual understanding of what breast milk is and one of the things I was really surprised but also unsurprised to learn was that certainly in the west for much of history breast milk has been thought of as menstrual blood a kind of menstrual blood that travels from the uterus 
through a special vein. And as it passes the heart, it goes from red to white, and then it becomes milk. And that, you you know, that kind of makes sense in the fact that if you're a new mother, if you're lactating, you're probably, you don't have menstrual blood. There's a kind of logic to it, I suppose. That also fed into why breast milk was also seen as a bit squeamish and, you know, it's a questionable feminine bodily fluid. And it's only very, very recently that our understanding of breast milk has changed. It's really only in the last 20 years that real scientific research has looked at what goes into breast milk. It's something that for much of history has been so, so neglected. You spoke about animal milk and something that you mentioned in your book, I wonder if you could just share with us, is concerns about animal milk and the impact that that might have on a child. There are concerns in history around the use of animal milk that somehow the the milk would transmit animal-like qualities that you would take on, you know, the unintelligence of a donkey, for example. Interestingly, those fears around contagion and transmission through milk also apply to women's milk with wet nursing and making sure that you choose the right kind of wetness is very, very important to make sure you're transmitting the right kind of moral traits through the milk to the baby. Alongside animal milk, there have been other alternatives to breast milk. I wonder if you could speak about a couple of those. Yes. So PAP. So any any listeners familiar with kind of, you know, the early modern period will have come across the idea of what PAP is probably. It's, it's usually some sort of bread mixed with mixed with maybe sweet beer or something and then sweetened with honey a kind of very precursor to to formula sometimes pap was an attempt to solve the problem of disease transmission between wet nurse and infant so for example in the 1500s in france syphilis was rife and being fed by a wet nurse obviously risked infection to the baby And in that instance, sometimes animals were directly used to feed the baby. So babies would directly suckle from a goat, for example. The same kind of thing happened then in the 18th century, where there was the problem with babies who might be infected with syphilis, might then pass it on to the wet nurse. And so PAP was was advocated to solve that potential problem. And then, of course, by the 19th century, we start to see chemists try to to replicate uh, human milk and to create what we now call formula milk. And that was in response to high infant mortality with infants being fed pat was a solution to to attempt to solve the problem of using unpasteurized animal milk. Um, And so that's where we start to see the development of of infant formula. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. So you mentioned wet nursing there, and that's a really fascinating part of the story. What can the history of wet nursing tell us about ideas about class and femininity through history? Yeah, wet nursing reveals so, so much. Obviously, it would have originated out of need before before it became a more established practice with different customs. It can tell us about practices of weaning because we can, there's so much documentation attached to wet nursing historically. So we get a picture of childhood and infancy because we have legal documentation and contracts and and so on and so forth. It tells us about the imagined intimate connections between mother and child. For example, in Egypt, wet nurses for royal babies, their connection to royalty was such that the wet nurses' own biological children could call themselves the milk kin of the king. That's also true in other sort of cultures as well, where there's a kind of milky relationship between children who are genetically unrelated, but who shared a wet nurse. And so there'd be various kind of prohibitions uh, against getting married and, and things like that. In some Buddhist cultures, the wet nurse is a real symbol of generosity. And they tend to have, tend to be quite high status because of that. Elsewhere, for example, in classical antiquity, Often wealthy families employed wet nurses and they were slaves. They, you know, they weren't employed, they were, they were enslaved. Throughout all of these examples, though, there is an idea that you have to be very careful when you're selecting a kind of woman to wet nurse in terms of her physical attributes, her moral characteristics. There's usually a prohibition when you look at the contracts against the wet nurse um, having sexual relations because it's believed that will sour the milk. Within Europe, Wet nursing was popular amongst aristocratic families for a number of reasons. One of those is that lactation can impact your fertility. And so if you want to have lots of babies in quick succession and produce a lot of heirs, then you don't want to be lactating. You want to get back to your fertility. There was also, you know, it's also about maintaining an attractive figure and being sexually available for your husband. But the idea of wet nursing Even the idea of maintaining your attractive figure becomes reversed in Western Europe in the late late 18th century. And suddenly we have male physicians and and male writers talking about how the most attractive thing actually is to see a maternal woman, your maternal wife, blissfully breastfeeding. We start to see that maternal breastfeeding is is promoted, most famously by Jean-Jacques Rousseau the philosopher, who sees that biological mothers need to 
feed their own children, not just for the benefit of the child, but also for the benefit of civilization, for the benefit of mankind. He says that when mothers nurse their own children, there will be a reform in morals. Natural feeling will revive in every heart. When women become good mothers, men will be good husbands and fathers. In the late 18th century, he publishes a text, Emile, which was widely read, which really promotes this idea of aristocratic and wealthy women and middle-class women breastfeeding their own children. And that will have benefits for the state as well as, as for the individual children. I should say that Rousseau did put his own babies into a foundling hospital. So his own babies were not fed by their own mother. But he was certainly very important in this construction of a maternal ideal of the good idealised breastfeeding mother. And Rousseau is interesting, isn't he? Because it's really this moment of a watershed of changing ideas about parenthood, infancy, and that relationship between parents and children. How do you think that the story of breastfeeding has been changed by attitudes towards parenthood in a kind of broader sense? Yeah, I mean, it's deeply connected to ideas of parenthood, to ideas of how we relate to our children. I mean, if we look at the early 20th century with this idea of kind of scientific motherhood, it's all about feeding by the clock and making sure you can kind of quantify the amount that you're feeding your baby. All of this maternal work will contribute to a child who is who is not only healthy, but who can also contribute positively to society. And then throughout the 20th century, you kind of see almost this swing back to this point that now we have other theories of parenting where it's all about attachment and it's all about a move towards a more natural. And I use inverted commas because the idea of nature is something that can be constructed and employed in different ways. But yes, all of all of this feeds into how we think about how we feed our babies and the pressure that is put on mothers primarily in their role. And of course, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, breastfeeding isn't easy or possible for all women. So what have some of the alternatives that have been available been over time? For most of history, babies would have been fed by other other women. But one of the things that I was really surprised to find when I started doing the research for the book were uh, really early examples of baby bottles. And some of the earliest are kind of over 7,000 years old. You know, these were some of the first ones that, that I came across. I, I was so surprised that these weren't just a, a kind of modern invention or a Victorian invention. It's doubtful that they would have been used to feed newborn babies, but certainly they would have been used as part of a perhaps a weaning process um, with older infants, perhaps to help a mother's fertility return for other reasons. And it also points, I think, to how neglected this history is. And that was the other reason I wanted to pull together so many historical fragments in the book, because I felt that generally there is so much history there and so much of it has been neglected. And again, it's only very, very recently that these bottles have been looked at from the point of view of telling us something about uh, a maternal history. For a long time, for example, bottles found in Roman and Greek archaeological digs that we now know are infant feeding vessels were thought to be maybe oil lamps or, or some kind of other thing. The idea of interpreting this data with a view to the kind of feminine history, it, it just it just didn't happen. And so analysis done on these Bronze Age bottles show that they did have animal milk in them. So babies were being fed animal milk or maternal human milk. So women were expressing milk 
to to feed these babies and these bottles are so beautifully made i mean some are quite simple but some are shaped into to sort of animal shapes like a deer or a rabbit and they're beautifully decorated and i think i think that speaks a lot about kind of some of the universal aspects of of parenthood you know the care and attention that were put into these and by the 19th century these bottles had become more industrialized but they'd also become quite potentially dangerous hadn't they they had so you get a variation in the kind of designs of the bottles at this point you have ones that are made for example of glass with a very long rubber tube and the idea is that the the infant can kind of feed themselves it liberates the the parent completely from having to feed the child the problem of course was of hygiene and of bacteria without adequate sanitization without sterilizing without pasteurization of the milk that they were consuming bacteria just ran rife and unfortunately resulted in horrible numbers of children perishing because the bottles were unsafe and even even the advice given to parents in in kind of infant manuals is you know to wash the leather teat you know oh you only have to wash it every few weeks you know so you can imagine just how awful they became how unhygienic they were Something that I think we need to touch on, which is a a central tenet of your book, really, is what you call the politics of milk. What do you mean by that and how has it played out over time? Well, I think all of this is political. I think there is a politics to how we think about breast milk. It's about how we think about female bodies and how those bodies have been thought of throughout time. One thing that really struck me was how... There is so much debate still, you know, certainly within the UK, where public breastfeeding is enshrined in law. There is still debate about whether or not it's acceptable to feed in public and so on and so on. And there is a politics of this which I think extends out beyond milk and beyond breastfeeding. That question of breastfeeding in public, from what you found in your research, is that a fairly modern thing or does it have historical precedence? I mean, it varies in time and place in terms of how the ideas of public and private change over time. It's certainly not something that is exclusively a kind of modern phenomenon. There would have been periods in history where women were, you know, domestic spaces were separate. You would have a husband's chamber and the space for the women of the household to be. Certainly in early modern England, breastfeeding, you know, for most people would have been something that was very, very visible and very, very seen and in many parts of the world breastfeeding is something that would have been seen and would have been visible. So in some ways it is a modern construction, but again, it's it's context dependent. So of course you're approaching this as, as somebody who has experienced this yourself, but you're also approaching it as an art historian. And you look at depictions of breastfeeding throughout history in your book. What are some of the main tropes that you found in images of breastfeeding over time? Well, I mean, the idea of the the mother archetype is strong, right? The mother goddess throughout history, various places across the world. It's a vast, vast history. I think for me, growing up, not religious, but in the UK, before I had a child, if I was to picture breastfeeding, I would picture soft focus, halo light, a seated mother holding a baby in a cradle pose, perhaps a halo, drapery. The very, you know, the Renaissance depiction of the Virgin feeding Christ. Breastfeeding depictions date back far, far earlier. There's examples from the Indus Valley civilizations, which are 5,000 years old. But for me, that endure, you know, the image that I came to motherhood with probably, you know, was was the image of, of the Virgin Mary. 
there's changes to how even she is represented during the Renaissance. So the depictions that we have of the breastfeeding Madonna that start to emerge during the Renaissance, it's really about making her more relatable and accessible, trying to encourage women to feed their own babies uh, rather than use a wet nurse. So we start to see representations of the bare breast of the Virgin. That then also then changes because you have the problem of nudity. How do you separate the maternal breast from the erotic breast? Sometimes that was done through through the kind of the framing of the image, through using gold or whatever to frame the image in a more sacred way. Sometimes the breast was partially covered. I was looking at terracotta the other day, which has traces in it of holes where they would have actually used real textile to to cover the bare breasts and the the, the genitals of Christ in the Renaissance. Often one strategy was to have a very detached and fake looking breast. So you see the Madonna and her breast is somewhere up on her shoulder. It's it's a way of detaching it from her body to take away any any kind of problematic questions about showing showing a breast. Within a few decades, by the early 15th century, there was a real shift towards naturalism and the demand that the body would be more anatomically correct. And then we start to see depictions of, of the virgin breastfeeding start to kind of disappear because there was no way to, to solve that problem of, of how you can depict that, you know, the unsolvable problem of the nudity, the nudity of it. Even that just snapshot of a couple of centuries in Italy is just, it just reveals so much about how quickly ideas can change. And finally, is there anything that you learned in your research about the history of breastfeeding that really surprised you, that you think is worth sharing with our listeners? So much, so much surprised me. The first thing that really surprised me was when I came across Victorian nipple shields and kind of discovered that firstly they were made of things like tin. That was my first surprise in that I realised that actually women have been mitigating problems for far longer than, than I had imagined. I think also the other thing which I think I hope comes through in the book is that we Throughout history, there's been situations where the ideal that is presented for motherhood often butts up against the social and the economic realities for women. So when we talk about Rousseau and his appeal to women to breastfeed, the way that there was so much infrastructure put in place to sell this idea to women, to promote this idea of maternal breastfeeding, yet at the same time, there was such a vast wet nursing industry. So one of the things that surprised me most was that in Paris, in the sort of the late 18th, early 19th century, so many babies were being sent to be nursed in the countryside. So at the same time that we have people reading Rousseau and reading Emile, I think in, in, in 1780, only 1,000 babies were nursed by their own mothers in Paris that year. Whereas about 20,000 babies born in that same year were taken out to the countryside, sent out to be wet nurse. And the reason for that is that parents wanted their children to be breastfed. You know, they wanted their children to have the breast milk, but it wasn't economically viable for women living in Paris with high rent, uh, you know, working. It wasn't viable them, for them to feed their own babies. It made more economic sense for them to pay somebody else to do it for them because women were increasingly working in the new factories, in the shops, so on and so forth. So they had to outsource the feeding of their babies in rural communities. So as the fashions changed and upper-class women were starting to feed their own babies, working women, middle-class women 
were having to use wet nurses. And that surprised me so much. It's a real small snapshot in history. There's so much beautiful visual culture around it and heartbreaking visual culture around it. But I found that so, so surprising. That was Joanna Wolfeth. Her book, Milk, An Intimate History of Breastfeeding, is available now, published by Orion. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.